Good morning, brothers and sisters. So as you're hopefully aware now, we're starting a series on the New Testament church. Now, the message this morning is titled, uh, The Church, God's Representative on Earth. Okay? So that, that's our, our, our theme or our topic this morning. And I must confess, topical uh, messages tend to be hard for me. Number one, because there's just a lot of information and my mind is tiny, even though my head's big. <laughs> so by God's grace, we will, uh, uh, we will get through this and God will be glorified in it. The church of God and his representation here on earth. Now, the main theme of the church, right, or the doctrine of the church is centered around one thing and one thing only. When, when, we, when we look in the New Testament and we look at the illustration of the church, we see that the church is compared to a bride, right? It's also compared to a, to a, 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 a building. It's compared to, uh, it's, it's compared to, to a, a, a vine and a branch, compared to a flock. It's compared to a body. And in all those illustrations, Christ is involved. And so not to get too, too involved in each of these examples, but we were reminded by that this morning here when our brother brought us to First Peter there in chapter 2. When it talks about the church being a building, a temple, saying that we who are believers who are in the church are living stones being put together on this great building. And it says that its foundation, its chief corner, is who? It's Christ. What is a building without a foundation? Rumble. What are you without Christ? Dead just like a stone who is found in the field, a brick out in the yard somewhere, a brick is useless unless it is put on a foundation. So we see that the, the doctrine of the church is centered around Christ. What is a bride without a bridegroom? Just a single lady. But there is a lot to be said about the examples. You see that, that bride, that chaste virgin, who longs for her beloved, her bridegroom. And so the doctrine of the church is centered around Christ. And so my, my, my prayer and hope this morning is that Christ will be glorified, will be exemplified, will be lifted in your hearts. You know, the, the, this topic of the church can be a dis, divisive one as well. For if we look across this great nation and you look at all the, the churches that call themselves Christian, there's a lot of variety. There's a lot of differences. There's a lot of disagreement. And, and, and I'll, I'll tell you this. Listen, the, the leadership here, we're, we're taking this topic and, and we're coming before you humbly. Not, not that we know all the answers. Not that we, we stand here with, with, with the right way and the only way. But we stand here based upon what the Word of God says and the way we see it. 
Do we do all things perfect? No. But I tell you, we try by God's grace to do everything which his word dictates us to do. The word of God prescribes how his church should gather. Prescribes how he, he, the, the roles of men and women. Prescribes the, 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 what meanings to gather in. Prescribes authority. The Lord didn't just blindly let us do whatever we want. It's his church. It's Christ who's at center of all this. Church. The word church has a lot of uh, misunderstanding behind it. When, when we ask anybody on the street, we say, what do you think the word church is or means? What's the number one answer they're going to tell you? It's quite simple. Oh, it's, it's, it's the building, right? They'll point to Boulevard Bible Chapel and say, hey, look, that's a church, right? Now, I, I tell you, I, I know it could be nitpicky, but that's incorrect. The word church in the New Testament is the, is the Greek word ekklesia. Now, I, I'm not a Greek scholar by any stretch of the imagination. All I have is a strongest concordance. <laughs> and by God's grace, I, I learn a little bit of the Greek language. But the, the, the word ekklesia is a compound word. It's made up of two words, right? Ek, meaning to be taken out or from. Klesia being rooted in the word kaleo, which is, uh, I'm sorry, which is called. So the root word is called out. Ekklesia. And so when we look at the word church in the New Testament, and you can get your strong accordance to start looking up, there's quite a number of references. The church is never referred to a building. In the book of Acts, when you read the word church, it never talks about a physical location. The church are the people, the called out ones. Called out from where? From the world. Called out ones. So, our building here, we don't call it Boulevard Bible Church. We call it chapel. Because the church is inside the building. The building is just a building. It's a chapel. It's a hall. It's an auditorium. It's a, what, call it whatever you want. The church are the, are, are the hearts and soul who have given themselves to the living God. That is the church. The called out ones who love the Savior. The church. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about the mystery of the church. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the, to the epistle, uh, to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3. And, and I, want to, I want to talk a little bit about the mystery of the church. Because the church is a new idea. The church was not seen in the days of Abraham. The concept of the church was not seen in the, in the days of King David or, or in the days of Daniel. The church is a new concept. And um, for the sake of time, let's begin reading at verse, uh, verse number 8. It says, to me, this is Paul writing, who I am less than, than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. There's Christ again. And to make all see what is the fellowship 
of the mystery, which from the beginning of of the age has been hidden in God who created all things. Now this mystery he's talking about, he explains what the mystery is. The mystery is the church. If you go back a couple of verses, he talks about that mystery. And if you go back a couple of verses to the next chapter, he talks about the, 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 the church being this building, this spiritual house of the household of God. You see, the idea that God would dwell amongst his people is not a foreign idea. That's actually back in the Old Testament. Back there in Exodus, right? When the children of Israel were wandering in the wilderness, the Lord said, listen, I I want you to build a sanctuary for me that I may dwell with my people. So what's the mystery? What is the mystery? Well, number one, the mystery has two facets. Number one is that those who were far off from that Sanctuary. Chapter 2 of, of this epistle calls it the middle wall partition. What separated the rest of the world from Jehovah, the God of the Jews, the God of Israel, has now been broken down. And so now in Christ, remember Christ is the center of all things, in Christ, both Jew and Gentile are on equal footing. We're on the same ground. And secondly, the hidden mystery is that God pursues all people. All people. Th- just think about that a little bit. Th- th- that next verse that we, um, in, in Ephesians chapter 3, in verse 10 it says, To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. Now, that's a very interesting verse. The intent was that now the manifold wisdom. What was the intent of this mystery? What was the intent of the church? Is that the manifold wisdom might be made, uh, might be known by the church. To whom? To principalities and powers in heavenly places. Principalities and powers in heavenly places. Who is that? The angels. You see, the angels look down and they see humanity and they see the church and they see the manifold wisdom of God. Now, why, why do you think that is? Well, you see, the angels have a very unique view. They've seen God's work from the beginning to now and to the end. They've looked back, they can look back and, and, and see there when Abram, Abraham was known as Abram, and he walked in Ur of the Chaldeans. And as, as Stephen would put it, the God of glory called him. And God would call Abraham, I want you to come out of this land of Ur of the and I'm going I'm to take you to a land which I will show you, and I will give you a great Descendants, and I will bless you. And through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And they begin to see the manifold witness, the manifold grace of our living God. And from Abraham, there was one and single and only seed, 
Isaac, how is there going to be a great descendant? As he told Abraham, Abraham, look up to the sky, look up to the heavens. How many stars do you see? That's how many numerous your descendants will be. Look to the, look, look to the, the floor and see how much dust there is. That's how much your descendants will be. And yet the Lord only gave him one son, Isaac. Yeah, but through Isaac came Jacob. Through Jacob came the twelve. But you see, the Lord narrowed his grace. The Lord narrowed his purposes, right? And he kept the seed that was promised there in Genesis, by the way. When humanity fell, by the way. Humanity fell, and there at the the worst moment of humanity, when Adam and Eve fell, the Lord promised a redemption. He says, I promise a future seed of that woman. And God's manifold wisdom and grace is seen. It went from... Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to Judah, the tribe of Judah, the royal line. From the tribe of Judah, then we come to King David, and we have the sure mercies of David. And from David, we come to Luke chapter 2, that nativity scene. And we have the living God in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. And God would walk this earth among sinners. He would eat with sinners. He would perform miracles. He would teach wonderful things. And he would allow himself to be taken in the hands of sinners. And he would die on the cross. But thankfully, he did not stay in the tomb, but he rose again on the third day. And he showed himself to many witnesses, and, and, and there he ascended, and he sits at the right hand of God. So when the, the, the principalities and powers in heavenly places look down and they look upon the church, what do they see? What do they see, I ask you? They see that the most precious one in heaven came down and gave himself for the most wretched down here. They see the cost. They see the price that was paid. The mystery of the church. Let's move on. That was the mystery of the church. Let's now talk about where the church, or at least the idea of the church first was illustrated to us. Now, if you have a a concordance, you can look in your concordance to see where the first time the word ecclesia came to be or, or showed up in the scriptures. And it was actually one of the Gospels. And um, it's actually an interesting point when you think about this. We say, well, if the Lord's going to introduce the church in the New Testament, uh, which Gospel do you think he would introduce it in? And you say, well, well, the Gospel of John is a great Gospel. It, it, It illustrates Jesus as the Son of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. If there's any gospel that we should have the word church in, it should be the gospel of John. No, it's not in the book of John. Well, maybe it's in the, in the book of Luke. Luke portrays our Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of Man. When, 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 when Luke begins, he begins his genealogy in Adam, and he traces his humanity. But no, it's not in the book of Luke. How about Mark? Mark portrays him as a servant. 
He came to serve and not be served. Now it's not in Mark. Obviously, if I find it in Matthew, why is that interesting? Because out of all the Gospels, Matthew portrays him as king. As king. You see, the Jews were looking for a king. The Jews were looking for one to, to redeem the nation. But God had his own timing, had the church in mind. And so I, I want you to turn with me to this great passage in Matthew chapter 16. And we're going to look at a couple points in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, by the way, in the story of the life of Christ in this, in this gospel, is what many scholars consider the pinnacle, the climax of his earthly career. It is a watershed moment. If you were to read the, the gospel of Matthew to this point, the Lord, the Lord and his reception and his following and his miracles have all been in a positive light. Everybody's accepted it. It's been great. It's been wonderful. But here in, in Matthew chapter 16 and beginning of verse 13, we have this watershed moment. And let's read a couple of these verses. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, it says, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I am? The son of man, M. So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or others the prophets. And he said to them, from whom do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Here we have the first mention of the church. And look at its setting. Look at, it, look at its circumstances. Here you have the Lord and his disciples in Caesarea Philippi. Now, it's kind of interesting that he, he wandered all around the Galilean region, and he would go down to Jerusalem. But in this instance, he went to Caesarea Philippi, which is about 20 miles, 25 miles northeast of the Sea of Galilee, to one of the, the headwaters that would feed the, the Sea of Galilee. So he's quite distant, quite far from where he normally gathered. And there with his disciples, he asks a very important question. Whom do men say that I am? You see, the, the, the disciples have been walking for quite some time. They had seen some great miracles. They had seen him preach wonderful things. They had seen him feed 5,000 and 4,000. And I'm sure they've heard a lot of people's opinion about it. And so the Lord asked him, whom do they say that I am? Now, I will say this. I think the disciples were gracious in what they said about him. Because I'm pretty sure they heard some nasty things about the Lord. They could have said, well, you, he's an illegitimate man. Some say he's, he, he's, he's crazy. He's, he's filled with a demon. But that's not what they say. So, well, so, some say that he's John the Baptist. 
Well, I wonder why they say that. I wonder why, why people would look at Jesus and say, well, he's John the Baptist. When John the Baptist says to himself, you know, listen, he, he's the bridegroom. Listen, he must increase. I must decrease. I think it speaks to his message. John the Baptist preached what? Repentance. Repentance. And what did the Lord come here to do? To preach repentance of their sins. And so you could see why people would look at Jesus and say, well, he's like John the Baptist. Yes, he's like John the Baptist. But is he just like John the Baptist? Is he just a mere man, or just a mere prophet, a good prophet at that? God forbid. Well, others say, well, he, he's like Jeremiah. And that's kind of an odd one. Jeremiah. Well, you know, one of, the, one of the, the most commonly known things about Jeremiah is that he was a weeping prophet. Here's a man who had a word of God to his people, of impending judgment. And he would cry to his people, and his people would not listen. And Jeremiah wept. The Lord himself here on earth would cry to his own people. He came to his own and his own received them not. And he shed tears. We can see how he could be like a Jeremiah, don't we? Man of sorrows acquainted with grief. A weeping prophet. But he's more than just a weeping prophet. He's far greater. Some say he's like Elijah. Oh, well, Elijah, a prophet of power, a prophet of great power, of miracles. He, he, would, he would call God to send fire from heaven and consume the sacrifice. And God would, would, would show in great power who he is. And the Lord, in great authority, would, would, would command demons to leave, and they would leave. Is he a prophet of great power? He's far more than that. And some would say that he's just a prophet. That's what the other that's what that's what everybody says. He says to the disciples, Whom do you say I am? You've been with me, you've walked with me, you you you've eaten with me, you you you've slept next to me, you've prayed with me, you've told me, whom do you say that I am? And Peter, having revelation but from God the Father Himself would would, would declare the most magnificent truth there could be. He says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You see, as great as Elijah was, as, as wonderful as Jeremiah was, as great as, as John the Baptist were, or the prophets, all those who came before, they were just men. There were just mouthpieces of the living God. There were just mere men, flawed men. But here stood the Christ, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. Yes, he performed miracles. Yes, he had wonderful. Yes, he had compassion and tears for the lost. But he was their creator. He's the one who breathed life into them. He is so much more. This is the first time in this gospel in which his person is, is revealed and testified to clearly. 
And the Lord blesses Simon and says, Simon Barjona, blessed are you for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then we have verse 18. And it says this, it says, I also say to you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, first of all, I, I want to clear up any misunderstanding when it comes to this verse. It says, your name is Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Some will tell you that that rock in which he will build his church is Peter himself. And I will tell you that that is incorrect because Peter himself, by the way, would pen that epistle in, 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 in first, uh, first Peter in chapter 2. He would say, you are living stones, and you are being built on the chief cornerstone he himself was a living stone he understood that so don't be fooled by anybody who comes around saying that that peter had this great privilege that you and i don't have that he stands as the father of the church he's just a servant like you and i was yes he was an apostle yes he saw things that we didn't get to see And his experience is not our experience. You're right. In that sense, he is special. But he's just a man. He stood before Cornelius and and the host there in the book of Acts. And Cornelius, and and, and as he began to speak, Cornelius and his family would bow down before him. And they would say to him, stand up, man. I'm just a human being like you. I'm just like you. Do not bow down. Only bow down before the living God. He's just a man. So what is the rock in which he will build his church? Well, I think the rock in which he's speaking up is the confession that Peter made. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. What is it that is the foundation of the church? It is Christ. He is the chief cornerstone. No other foundation can be laid but that of Christ. Christ is the foundation. Now, I, I want to take some time, and, and I, I want to, I, I, I guess, and analyze and enunciate that sentence for you. And let, let's think about it a little bit, because this is the first time the word church is, is, is brought up in our New Testament. And there's a lot that can be learned from it, right? Now, it says, upon this rock, it says, I will build my church... And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We talked about the rock. Right? The rock being Christ. Not Peter. Christ. He says, I will build my church. Now, yes, in in every local group, in every local gathering uh, of the church, right? There are those who work in toil. Those who labor in leadership, those who labor in the teaching of the word of God, those who labor to serve, those who labor to clean, those who, a lot of us labor. But don't not be mistaken. Nothing I do, nothing the elders do, nothing anyone in this building does will advance God's church one second in their own strength. Nothing I can muster can, 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 can build you up 
It is the work of Christ. I will build my church. Listen, sometimes we can get down on ourselves, right? And we look at our lives and we say, Lord, I, I'm not where I need to be. I, I still struggle with the same sins over and over. And, 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 and Lord, this... And we come to church and we go, well, you know, if we had this, this, and this, it would be so much better. Uh, we would have more people coming in. Maybe if we had a bigger building, if we had a bigger parking lot, it, it, we could do so much more, right? Listen, are you building it? Are, are you going to make this successful? God forbid. God forbid. I will build my church, he says. It is he who does it. We're just here to obey and to serve. If the Lord calls us to go here, we go here. The Lord tells us to stay, we stay. It's not for us to, with our own strength and our own wisdom, to muster some, some, some great uh, a revival. You know, in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 42, you have this, this song of the Lord's servant. And there's a phrase in one of the verses that says, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will not fail. He will not fail. Listen, I, I, I have the privilege from time to time to travel to other, other assemblies and to, and to preach and to teach, and some are, are, are healthy and wonderful, and some are struggling. And you look at their situation, and in human perspective and in human eyes, you say, wow, it is bleak. It doesn't look good. Last week, our brother Dunlap sat there, and he put those figures up there. Remember that? And we, and we, we look at, at, at the decrease of the, of the Christian church here in America. And we can panic, can't we? But who's the Lord of the church? Listen. He will cause it to increase, not you and I. All we are asked to do is to obey. To obey. We spoke about the rock. I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now I want you to consider that. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. The the, the imagery there is the church ramming the gates of hell. It's not the other way around. Sometimes we think in the Christian church that we have to kind of build up our walls and, and we have to kind of huddle together and, and, and we can get through this together, guys, okay? We, 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 and the devil's going to attack us and we're going to muster through. That's not the image you're seeing here. It says that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church, believers, should be on the offensive The image is of believers going through the gates of hell and leading souls that are death, souls that are imprisoned to sin, souls that are are captive to this world, leading them to a new life, pointing them to the living God, pointing them to Christ and taking these souls from death to life. That's the imagery there. We don't play the defense, we play offense. And we don't do it with our own strength again. It's not our strength that gets us through the gates. It's not our strength that redeems a single soul. It's far from it. All we are but a channel. All we are but a vessel. 
We can't do anything. It is God who does the work. It is God who saves and redeems the souls. It is God who plucks that amber. It is God who redeems the brokenhearted. You know, one of the amazing things about this section of Scripture is that you see four principles that are central to the church in this, in this section of Scripture. First, we see the declaration that, of Christ. We talked about Christ. Christ is the center of the church. He's the head of the church. Without Christ, there is no church. We talked about the church. We talked about the concept of these called out ones, ones who were called out of this world, of this present evil world, into his marvelous light, called out. Next we see the cross. If you look down at verse 21, it says, From this time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. You see, the disciples to this point had no clue, no idea that Jesus had plans to go down to Jerusalem, give himself to a give himself to, to in the hand of a mob to be mistreated, to be wrongly charged, and to be crucified. They had no concept of this. But it says here that after Peter gave this confession, he says, from this day on, it says that he began to show his disciples what was going to happen. And what was going to happen? The cross. You see, the church can't live without Christ. The church does not survive without the cross either. The church cannot survive without the cross. Without the cross, there is no remission of sin. Without the cross, there is no redeeming of souls. Without the cross, there is no being born again. And it's not just the cross, but it's also, I should have finished that verse, and it says, and he raised them on the third day. It's very important. The cross is not just him dying for the sins of humanity. It's also him being accepted by the Father and being raised again in power and glory. So we have Christ, we have the church, and we have the cross. And then one last concept that is pivotal to the church and it's found in verse 27. It says, For the Son of Man will come in glory with his Father and with his angels, and then will reward each according to his works. And we have his coming. His coming. So we see that the church is centered around Christ. You know, the, 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 the Old Testament economy or the Old Testament uh, system what, what was, was different than the church in the sense that it was always, it was, always, uh, it was kind of like a, like a fold. It, it, was, it was walled in area and, and they stayed as long as we stay here uh, and God is with us. And, and, and they did everything they could to stay near Jerusalem and there was a fold. They couldn't go outside of it. Christianity is not like that. We, 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 don't, we don't put walls around and, and we don't, we don't, we don't uh, segregate ourselves like monks do and, and keep ourselves in the world. That, that's not what God calls the church to do. It's, it's kind of inverse now. 
The church is not a fold of us getting together and hiding from the world or, or, or keeping from the world. The church has no walls. But it is Christ now. Not a fold, but a shepherd. And the sheep know the shepherd. And they hear his voice and follow him. It is no longer walls around us, but it is a person in the center. It is he who we follow. It is him who we seek. It is him who we serve. We don't do these things. We don't serve the living God because it's our obligation. We do it because we love him. And we love him because he first loved us. Let me leave you with this verse. And so much more can said. I, I was going to take you to Acts chapter 2, but time would not allow us really. So much can be said about the birth of the church. We talked about the, the, the first mention of the church in Matthew. And then we can talk about the, Acts, or, or, or the, the birth of the church, which didn't happen until Acts chapter 2. Uh, but we honestly don't have time to, to get there. So I will leave you with this final point in in the, in the gospel of John, the last chapter, the gospel of John, uh, chapter 20, I'm sorry, not the last chapter, chapter 20. And beginning of verse 19, here we have the Lord had gone to the cross, had finished the work, was buried. And he was in the tomb three days and on the third day he arose, and the women would, would go that third day, the first day of the week in the morning, to, with spices to serve or, or, or to take care of the body of our Lord, and they found no body. And here in verse 19 we pick up when they were all gathered together. It says, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled. For fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. You know, it's a beautiful phrase, Peace be with you. When we think about the circumstances, when we think about what was going on, here are the disciples and his followers all crammed into this room. The, the, the windows were closed. The doors were locked. They were fearful. They were scared that the Jews who crucified their Savior were going to come hunt them down. And now they, they heard news this morning that the body is not there. The body is gone. And, and, and the ladies could not find the body. Peter and John would go and they, they saw an angel. They, they, the, the body's gone. Where is their Lord? And there... In a shut room, he appears to them. And he says, peace, peace be with you. Now imagine, yes, that, that those are comforting words, peace be with you, in the sense you're worried about what's going on outside. Listen, it's okay, peace be with you. But I think it's far deeper than just the, the, the temporary circumstances that we're in. For the work of Christ for the work of, uh, of the cross, for the work of his resurrection, gave them a peace that surpasses all understanding. 
When God says, peace be with you, it is true, everlasting peace. A man who is condemned to sin, a man who is lost in his sin, who is on his way to eternity in hell, can find peace with the living God through the work of Jesus Christ. Peace be with you. Verse 20 says, And he said, he had said this, he showed them his hands, his sides. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. They were glad to see the Lord. Why were they glad? Well, because he lives. Because he lives. If he doesn't live, Paul will say we're, 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 we're pitiable people, aren't we? But he lives. Our Lord lives. And then verse 21 says this, and I'll leave you with this. So Jesus said to them, peace to you. Now as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Who represents God here on earth? The church. Not the building. Let's be clear on that. The people. The blood-bought, born-again believers. Listen. We can turn to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And, and, and it goes on to say how, how, how the Word left the glories of heaven to come to earth to what? To demonstrate to the world, to demonstrate to you and I who the Father was. Why did the Son come down to earth? To show the glories and grace and mercy of the Father. Now here's the Lord saying to you, to I. Just as the Father sent me, I send you. You're to be little Christs. Do you know the word Christian in the Greek? It's little Christ. That's what it means. You know, it, it's kind of a strange concept in the English language, but in the Spanish language, you put, you put the, the last two or the couple letters, ito, in the, in the end of a word, and it means little, right? Pobrecito, uh, little guy, you know? It's the same thing in the Greek. You're to be little Christ here on earth. That's our purpose. You are to represent the living God as Christ here on earth. So I, ble- I pray that Christ is glorified and exemplified in your hearts and that you're urged. As we, 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 we continue these studies in the church, that Christ is the focus. He is the reason. He's the reason why we gather. He's the reason why we do anything that we do. And if we do it for any other reasons, by the way, that's a, it's a waste of time. And, and lastly, I know I've said lastly a lot of times, but one of the portions, that, one of the sections I was supposed to cover for you was the false church. And I, I don't have, number one, I wouldn't have had time to really cover it. But number two is the false church is very simply without Christ. Any church, any place that calls themselves the church and, and, and does not edify Christ 
as the Messiah, as the Son of God, the source of life, the source of salvation, the source of forgiveness is not a church. So without getting into the nitty gritty of, of what is a false church, I give you the true church, which is Christ and him glorified. And, and, and you can go anywhere in this world and you can find a true church and a false church by the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Blessed be his name. Let's pray. Our Heavenly God and Father, we, we thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As, as, as this morning our brother prayed and, and, and he kept saying, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord. Uh, we're befuddled, Lord, when it comes to the, 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 describing the feeling of thankfulness in our hearts when it comes to what you have done for us. You've done so much. You, you, you've translated us from darkness into light. You've taken us from bondage to, 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 to sons and daughters of God. You, you, you've, you, you've indwelt us with your Holy Spirit. You've given us the power to live lives that, that honor and are holy, be, and holy before you, Lord. Father, we, we ask that the truth of this doctrine of the church, Lord, would be a, a, a wake-up call for us. Not just as a church, but individually, Lord. Lord, you, you, you instituted the church, Lord. It, it, it is your choice bride. In the, in the end of this book, Lord, it, it ends with a wedding. It started with a wedding, Lord, and it ends with a wedding. And it is the church who is prepared for her bridegroom. Lord, let this, let this local body, let this group of believers be known as ones who love the Lord, who seek the face of their master, who long to see their beloved face to face. And let the love of Christ compel us on how we act, how we speak. Lord, help us to love you more and more each day. I ask all these things in His precious name. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.